So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Betrayed and humiliated, how will Scaramouche find justice and vengeance? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, with kind of no end in sight, we need your help more than ever. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping us to keep going strong. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. We have a few short stories and a few full-length novels available for free for your enjoyment. Also, we have a new website. Check out our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. It's easier than ever to get where you need to go. Thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. App users can hear Death Be Not Proud, properly known as Holy Sonnet 10, by John Donne in the special features area of their app. Now for our personal moment. This just happened tonight. All of us were home, and we finished watching The Great Escape. It's one of our favorites. It's good stuff, Hiltz. Your German is good. We have so many little phrases in our family that we say from The Great Escape. We love it. Afterwards, we played a new game, the New Yorker cartoon caption game. It is exactly what it sounds like. You show the cartoons from the New Yorker, and you write a caption for them. It's super fun. Last week was also Scylla's birthday, and we did fondue. I don't know if I've mentioned this. Fondue, the original fondue, you know, a big bucket of cheese, is the best thing ever. Just putting that out there. As a voice guy, I can't do cheese very often, but that moment when we're all doing fondue together, it's wonderful. We just love it. So, that's our personal moment. Moving on. So here's the story so far. André Louis is on the run from the law, who wants to take him to task for inciting rebellion. He runs across some traveling players and becomes a cracking success as an actor and author. But now it appears that his fiancée has a rather overly ardent admirer in none other than the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir, his most hated enemy and the reason he's on the run in the first place. And on top of that, Aline, André-Louis' closest friend and confidant, is to marry de la Tour d'Azir. But Aline knows of the tawdry affair between her lover and André-Louis' fiancé, and she's not happy about it. And now, 
Scaramouche, Part 7 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 10. Contrition. Mademoiselle de Kercadieu walked with her aunt in a bright morning sunshine of a Sunday in March on the broad terrace of the Chateau de Sautron. For one of her natural sweetness of disposition, she had been oddly irritable of late, manifesting signs of a cynical worldliness, which convinced Madame de Sautron more than ever that her brother Quentin had scandalously conducted the child's education. She appeared to be instructed in all the things of which a girl is better ignorant, and ignorant of all the things that a girl should know. That at least was the point of view of Madame de Sautron. "'Tell me, Madame,' quoth Aline, "'are all men beasts? Unlike her brother, Madame la Comtesse was tall and majestically built. In the days before her marriage with Monsieur de Sautron, ill-natured folk, described her as the only man in the family. She looked down now from her noble height upon her little niece with startled eyes. Really, Aline, you have a trick of asking the most disconcerting and improper questions. Perhaps it is because I find life disconcerting and improper. Life? A young girl should not discuss life. Why not, since I am alive? You do not suggest that it is an impropriety to be alive. It is an impropriety for a young unmarried girl to seek to know too much about life. As for your absurd question about men, when I remind you that man is the noblest work of God, perhaps you will consider yourself answered. Madame de Sautron did not invite a pursuance of the subject. But Mademoiselle de Kierkegaard's outrageous rearing had made her headstrong. That being so, said she, will you tell me why they find such an overwhelming attraction in the immodest of our sex? Madame stood still and raised shocked hands. Then she looked down her handsome high-bridged nose. Sometimes, often, in fact, my dear Aline, you pass all understanding— I shall write to Quentin that the sooner you are married, the better it will be for all. Uncle Quentin has left that matter to my own deciding, Aline reminded her. That, said Madame, with complete conviction, is the last and most outrageous of his errors. Who ever heard of a girl being left to decide the matter of her own marriage? It is indelicate, almost, to expose her to thoughts of such things. Madame de Sautron shuddered. Quentin is a bore. His conduct is unheard of. That Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir should parade himself before you, so that you may make up your mind whether he is the proper man for you? <laughs> Again she shuddered. It is of a grossness, of, of a prurience almost... Mon Dieu, when I married your uncle, all this was arranged between our parents— I first saw him when he came to sign the contract. I should have died of shame had it been otherwise, and that is how these affairs should be conducted. You are no doubt right, madame, but since that is not how my own case is being conducted, you will forgive me if I deal with it apart from others. 
Monsieur de la Tour d'Azur desires to marry me. He has been permitted to pay his court. I should be glad to have him informed that he may cease to do so. Madame de Sautron stood still, petrified by amazement. Her long face turned white. She seemed to breathe with difficulty. But, but what are you saying? she gasped. Quietly, Aline repeated her statement. But this is outrageous! You cannot be permitted to play fast and loose with a gentleman of Monsieur de Marquis's quality. Why, it is little more than a week since you permitted him to be informed that you would become his wife. I did so in a moment of rashness. Since then, Monsieur le Marquis's own conduct has convinced me of my error. But, mon Dieu, cried the Countess, are you blind to the great honour that is being paid you? Monsieur le Marquis will make you the first lady in Brittany. Yet, little fool that you are, and greater fool that Contan is, you trifle with this extraordinary good fortune. Let me warn you. She raised an admonitory forefinger. If you continue in this stupid humour, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir may definitely withdraw his offer and depart in justified mortification. That, madame, as I am endeavouring to convey to you, is what I most desire. Oh, you are mad! It may be, madame, that I am sane in preferring to be guided by my instincts. It may be even that I am justified in resenting that the man who aspires to become my husband should, at the same time, be paying such assiduous homage to a wretched theatre girl at the Feydou. Aline, is it not true? Or perhaps you do not find it strange that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir should so conduct himself at such a time. Aline, you are so extraordinary a mixture. At moments you shock me by the indecency of your expressions. At others you amaze me by the excess of your prudery. You have been brought up like a little bourgeoise, I think. Yes, that is it, a little bourgeoise. Contin was always something of a shopkeeper at heart. I was asking your opinion on the conduct of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, madame, not on my own. But it is an indelicacy in you to observe such things. You should be ignorant of them. And I can't think who is so so unfeeling as to inform you. But since you are informed, at least you should be modestly blind to things that take place outside the orbit of a properly conducted demoiselle. Will they still be outside my orbit when I am married? If you are wise, you should remain without knowledge of them. It, it deflowers your innocence." I would not for the world that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir should know you so extraordinarily instructed. Had you been properly reared in a convent, this would never have happened to you. But you do not answer me, madame, cried Aline in despair. It is not my chastity that is in question, but that of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. Chastity? Madame's lips trembled with horror. Horror overspread her face. Wherever did you learn that... "'Dreadful, that so improper word!' "'And then Madame de Sautron did violence to her feelings. "'She realised that here great calm and prudence were required. "'My child, since you know so much that you ought not to know, "'there can be no harm in my adding that a gentleman must have these little distractions.' 
But why, madame? Why is it so? Oh, mon Dieu, you're asking me riddles of nature. It is so because it is so. Because men are like that. Because men are beasts, you mean. Which is what I began by asking you. You are incorrigibly stupid, Aline. You mean that I do not see things as you do, madame. I am not over-expectant, as you appear to think. Yet surely as I have the right to expect that whilst Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir is wooing me, he shall not be wooing at the same time a drab of the théâtre. I feel that in this there is a subtle association of myself with that unspeakable creature which soils and insults me. The Marquis is a dullard whose wooing takes the form at best of stilted compliments, stupid and unoriginal. They gain nothing when they fall from the lips, still warm from the contamination of that woman's kisses. So utterly scandalized was Madame that for a moment she remained speechless. Then, Mon Dieu, she exclaimed, I should never have suspected you of so indelicate an imagination. I cannot help it, Madame. Each time his lips touch my fingers, I find myself thinking of the last object that they touched. I at once retire to wash my hands. Next time, madame, unless you are good enough to convey my message to him, I shall call for water and wash them in his presence. What am I to tell him? How, in what words can I convey such a message? Madame was aghast. Be frank with him, madame. It is easiest in the end. Tell him that however impure may have been his life in the past, however impure he intends that it shall be in the future, he must at least study purity whilst approaching with a view to marriage a virgin who is herself pure and without stain. Madame recoiled and put her hands to her ears, horror stamped on her handsome face. Her massive bosom heaved. Oh, how can you? she panted. How can you make use of such terrible expressions? Wherever have you learnt them? In church, said Aline. Ah, but in church many things are said that, that one would not dream of saying in the world. My dear child, how could I possibly say such a thing to Monsieur le Marquis? How could I possibly? Shall I say it? Aline! Well, there it is, said Aline. Something must be done to shelter me from insult. I am utterly disgusted with Monsieur le Marquis, a disgusting man, and however fine a thing it may be to become Marquise de la Tour d'Azir, why, frankly, I'd sooner marry a cobbler who practised decency. Such was her vehemence and obvious determination that Madame de Sautron fetched herself out of her despair to attempt persuasion. Aline was her niece, and such a marriage in the family would be to the credit of the whole of it, at all costs, nothing must frustrate it. Listen, my dear, she said, let us reason. Monsieur le Marquis is away and will not be back until tomorrow. True, and I know where he has gone, or at least whom he has gone with. Mon Dieu, and the drab has a father and a lout of a fellow who intends to make her his wife, and neither of them chooses to do anything. I suppose they agree with you, madame, that the great gentleman must have his little distractions. Her contempt was as scorching as a thing of fire. However, madame, you were about to say that on the day after tomorrow you are returning to Gavriac, 
Monsieur de la Tour d'Azier will most likely follow at his leisure. You mean when this dirty candle is burnt out? Call it what you will. Madame, you see, despaired by now of controlling the impropriety of her niece's expressions. At Gavriac there will be no Mademoiselle Binet. This thing will be in the past. It is unfortunate that he should have met her at such a moment. The chit is very attractive, after all. You cannot deny that, and you must make allowances. Monsieur le Marquis formally proposed to me a week ago, partly to satisfy the wishes of my family, and partly— She broke off, hesitating a moment, to resume on a note of dull pain. Partly because it does not seem greatly to matter whom I marry, I gave him my consent. That consent, for the reasons I have given you, madame, I desire now definitely to withdraw. Madame fell into agitation of the wildest. Aline, I should never forgive you. Your uncle Contin would be in despair. You do not know what you are saying. What a wonderful thing you are refusing. Have you no sense of your position, of the station into which you were born? If I had not, madame, I should have made an end long since. If I have tolerated this suit for a single moment, it is because I realize the importance of a suitable marriage in the worldly sense. But I ask of marriage something more, and Uncle Quentin has placed the decision in my hands. God forgive him, said Madame. And then she hurried on. Leave this to me now, Aline. Be guided by me. Oh, be guided by me. Her tone was beseeching. I will take counsel with your Uncle Charles, but do not definitely decide until this unfortunate affair has blown over. Charles will know how to arrange it. Monsieur le Marquis shall do penance, child, since your tyranny demands it, but not in sackcloth and ashes. You'll not ask so much. Aline shrugged. I ask nothing at all, she said, which was neither assent nor dissent. So Madame de Sautron interviewed her husband, a slight middle-aged man, very aristocratic in appearance and gifted with a certain shrewd sense. She took with him precisely the tone that Aline had taken with herself, and which in Aline she had found so disconcertingly indelicate. She even borrowed several of Aline's phrases. The result was that on the Monday afternoon, when at last Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir's returning Berlin drove up to the chateau, he was met by Monsieur le Comte de Sautron, who desired a word with him even before he changed. Gervais, you're a fool, was the excellent opening made by Monsieur le Comte. Charles, you give me no news, answered Monsieur le Marquis. Of what particular folly do you take the trouble to complain? He flung himself wearily upon a sofa, and his long, graceful body sprawling there, he looked up at his friend with a tired smile on that nobly handsome pale face that seemed to defy the onslaught of age. Of your last, this Binet girl, that, pooh, an incident, hardly a folly. A folly at such a time, Sautron insisted. The Marquis looked a question. The Count answered it. Aline, said he, pregnantly. She knows. How she knows, I can't tell you, but she knows, and she is deeply offended. 
The smile perished on the Marquis's face. He gathered himself up. Offended? said he, and his voice was anxious. But yes, you know what she is. You know the ideals she has formed. It wounds her that at such a time, whilst you are here for the purpose of wooing her, you should at the same time be pursuing this affair with that shit of a Binet girl. How do you know? asked Latour d'Azir. She has confided in her aunt, and the poor child seems to have some reason. She says she will not tolerate that you should come to kiss her hand with lips that are still contaminated from— Oh, you understand. You appreciate the impression of such a thing upon a pure, sensitive girl, such as Aline. She said— I had better tell you that the next time you kiss her hand, she will call for water and wash it in your presence. The Marquis's face flamed scarlet. He rose. Knowing his violent, intolerant spirit, Monsieur de Sautron was prepared for an outburst. But no outburst came. The Marquis turned away from him and paced slowly to the window, his head bowed, his hands behind his back. Halted there, he spoke. Without turning, his voice was at once scornful and wistful. You are right, Charles. I am a fool, a wicked fool. I have just enough sense left to perceive it. It is the way I have lived, I suppose. I have never known the need to deny myself anything I wanted. Then suddenly he swung round, and the outburst came. But my God, I want to lean as I have never wanted anything yet. I think I should kill myself in rage if through my folly I should have lost her. He struck his brow with his hand. I am a beast, he said. I should have known that if that sweet saint got word of these petty devilries of mine, she would despise me. And I tell you, Charles, I'd go through fire to regain her respect. I hope it is to be regained on easier terms, said Charles. And then to ease the situation, which began to irk him by its solemnity, he made a feeble joke. It is merely asked of you that you refrain from going through certain fires that are not accounted by Mademoiselle of too purifying a nature. As to that Binet girl, it is finished, finished, said the Marquis. I congratulate you. When did you make that decision? This moment. I would to God I had made it twenty-four hours ago, as it is. He shrugged. Why, twenty-four hours of her have been enough for me as they would have been for any man. A mercenary, self-seeking little baggage with the soul of a trull. Ah! He shuddered in disgust of himself and her. Ah, that makes it easier for you, said Monsieur de Sautron cynically. Don't say it, Charles, it is not so. Had you been less of a fool, you would have warned me sooner. I may prove to have warned you soon enough, if you'll profit by the warning. There is no penance I will not do. I will prostrate myself at her feet. I will abase myself before her. I will make confession in the proper spirit of contrition, and heaven helping me, I'll keep to my purpose of amendment for her sweet sake. He was tragically in earnest. To Monsieur de Sautron, who had never seen him other than self-contained, supercilious, and mocking, this was an amazing revelation. He shrank from it almost. It gave him the feeling of prying, 
of peeping through a keyhole. He slapped his friend's shoulder. My dear Gervais, here is a magnificently romantic mood. Enough said. Keep to it, and I promise you that all will presently be well. I will be your ambassador, and you shall have no cause to complain. But may I not go to her myself? If you are wise, you will at once efface yourself. Write to her, if you will. Make your act of contrition by letter. I will explain why you have gone without seeing her. I will tell her that you did so upon my advice, and I will do it tactfully. I am a good diplomat, Chavet. Trust me. Monsieur le Marquis raised his head, and showed a face that pain was searing. He held out his hand. Very well, Charles. Serve me in this, and count me your friend in all things. Chapter 11 The Fracas at the Théâtre Feydoux Leaving his host to act as his plenipotentiary with Mademoiselle de Kierkadou, and to explain to her that it was his profound contrition that compelled him to depart without taking formal leave of her, the Marquis rolled away from Sautron in a cloud of gloom. Twenty-four hours with La Binet had been more than enough for a man of his fastidious and discerning taste. He looked back upon the episode with nausea, the inevitable psychological reaction, marvelling at himself that until yesterday he should have found her so desirable, and cursing himself that for the sake of that ephemeral and worthless gratification he should seriously have imperiled his chances of winning Mademoiselle de Kierkedieu to wife. There is, after all, nothing very extraordinary in his frame of mind, so that I need not elaborate it further. It resulted from the conflict between the beast and the angel that go to make up the composition of every man. The Chevalier de Chabriane, who in reality occupied towards the Marquis a position akin to that of gentleman-in-waiting, sat opposite to him in the enormous travelling Berlin. The small folding table had been erected between them, and the Chevalier suggested piquet. But Monsieur le Marquis was in no humour for cards. His thoughts absorbed him. As they were rattling over the cobbles of Nantes streets, he remembered a promise to Labinet to witness her performance that night in The Faithless Lover, and now he was running away from her. The thought was repugnant to him on two scores. He was breaking his pledged word, and he was acting like a coward, and there was more than that. He had led the mercenary little strumpet, it was thus he thought of her at present, and with some justice, to expect favours from him in addition to the lavish awards which already he had made her. The baggage had almost sought to drive a bargain with him as to her future. He was to take her to Paris, put her into her own furniture, as the expression ran, and still runs, and under the shadow of his powerful protection, see that the doors of the great theatres of the capital should be opened to her talents. He had not, he was thankful to reflect, exactly committed himself, but neither had he definitely refused her. It became necessary now to come to an understanding, since he was compelled to choose between his trivial passion for her, a passion quenched already, and his deep, almost spiritual devotion to Mademoiselle de Kierkadou. His honour, he considered, demanded of him that he should at once deliver himself from a false position. La Binet would make a scene, of course, 
but he knew the proper specific to apply to hysteria of that nature. Money, after all, has its uses. He pulled the cord. The carriage rolled to a standstill. A footman appeared at the door. To the Théâtre Fédou, said he. The footman vanished, and the Berlin rolled on. Monsieur de Chabrian laughed cynically. I'll trouble you not to be amused, snapped the Marquis. You don't understand. Thereafter he explained himself. It was a rare condescension in him, but then he could not bear to be misunderstood in such a matter. Chabrian grew serious in reflection of the Marquis's extreme seriousness. Why not write? he suggested. Myself, I confess that I should find it easier. Nothing could better have revealed Monsieur le Marquis's state of mind than his answer. Letters are liable both to miscarriage and to misconstruction. Two risks I will not run. If she did not answer, I should never know which had been incurred, and I shall have no peace of mind until I know that I have set the term to this affair. The Berlin can wait while we are at the theatre. We will go on afterwards. We will travel all night if necessary. Pest, said Monsieur de Chabrian with a grimace. But that was all. The great travelling carriage drew up at the lighted portals of the Feydou, and Monsieur le Marquis stepped out. He entered the théâtre with Chabrian, all unconsciously to deliver himself into the hands of André Louis. André Louis was in the state of exasperation produced by Clément's long absence from Nantes in the company of Monsieur le Marquis, and fed by the unspeakable complacency with which Monsieur Binet regarded that event of quite unmistakable import. However much he might affect the frame of mind of the Stoics, to seek to judge with a complete detachment, in the heart and soul of him, André Louis was tormented and revolted. It was not Clemen he blamed. He had been mistaken in her. She was just a poor, weak vessel, driven helplessly by the first breath, however foul, that promised her advancement. She suffered from the plague of greed, and he congratulated himself upon having discovered it before making her his wife. He felt for her now nothing but a deal of pity and some contempt. The pity was begotten of the love she had lately inspired in him. It might be likened to the dregs of love, all that remained after the potent wine of it had been drained off. His anger he reserved for her father and her seducer. The thoughts that were stirring in him on that Monday morning— when it was discovered that Clemen had not yet returned from her excursion of the previous day in the coach of Monsieur le Marquis, were already wicked enough without the spurring they received from the distraught Leandre. Hitherto the attitude of each of these men towards the other had been one of mutual contempt. The phenomenon has frequently been observed in like cases. Now, what appeared to be a common misfortune brought them into a sort of alliance. So at least it seemed to Leandre when he went in quest of André-Louis, who, with apparent unconcern, was smoking a pipe upon the quay, immediately facing the inn. "'Name of a pig,' said Leandre. "'How can you take your ease and smoke at such a time?' Scaramouche surveyed the sky. "'I do not find it too cold,' said he. "'The sun is shining. I am very well here. Do I talk of the weather?' Leandre was very excited. Of what, then? 
Of clean men, of course. Oh, the lady has ceased to interest me. He lied. Leandre stood squarely in front of him, a handsome figure, handsomely dressed in these days, his hair well powdered, his stockings of silk. His face was pale. His large eyes looked larger than usual. Ceased to interest you? Are you not to marry her? André-Louis expelled a cloud of smoke. You cannot wish to be offensive, yet you almost suggest that I live on other men's leavings. My God, said Leandre, overcome, and he stared a while. Then he burst out afresh. Are you quite heartless? Are you always scaramouche? What do you expect me to do? asked André-Louis, evincing surprise in his own turn, but faintly. I do not expect you to let her go without a struggle. But she has gone already. André-Louis pulled at his pipe a moment, what time Leandre clenched and unclenched his hands in impotent rage. And to what purpose struggle against the inevitable? Did you struggle when I took her from you? She was not mine to be taken from me. I but aspired, and you won the race. But even had it been otherwise, where is the comparison? That was a thing in honor. This, this is hell. His emotion moved, André-Louis. He took Leandre's arm. You're a good fellow, Leandre. I am glad I intervened to save you from your fate. Oh, you do not love her, cried the other passionately. You never did. You don't know what it means to love, or you'd not talk like this. My God, if she had been my affianced wife, and this had happened, I should have killed the man. Killed him, do you hear me? But you, oh, you, you come out here and smoke, and take the air, and talk of her as another man's leavings. I wonder I didn't strike you for the word. He tore his arm from the other's grip, and looked almost as if he would strike him now. You should have done it, said André-Louis. It's in your part. With an imprecation, Leandre turned on his heel to go. André-Louis arrested his departure. A moment, my friend. Test me by yourself. Would you marry her now? Would I? The young man's eyes blazed with passion. Would I? Let her say that she will marry me, and I am her slave. Slave is the right word. A slave in hell. It would never be held to me where she was. Whatever she had done, I love her, man. I am not like you. I love her. Do you hear me? I have known it for some time, said André-Louis, though I didn't suspect your attack of the disease to be quite so violent. Well, God knows I loved her, too, quite enough to share your thirst for killing. For myself, the blue blood of La Tour d'Azir would hardly quench this thirst. I should like to add it to the dirty fluid that flows in the veins of the unspeakable Binet. For a second, his emotion had been out of hand, and he revealed to Leandre, in the mordant tone of those last words, something of the fires that burned under his icy exterior. The young man caught him by the hand. I knew you were acting, said he. You feel, you feel as I do. Behold us. Fellows in viciousness. I have betrayed myself, it seems. Well, and what now? Do you want to see this pretty marquis torn limb from limb? I might afford you the spectacle. What? Leandre started, wondering was this another of Scaramouche's cynicisms. 
act isn't really difficult, provided I have aid. I require only a little. Will you lend it me? Anything you ask, Leandre exploded. My life if you require it. André-Louis took his arm again. Let us walk, he said. I will instruct you. When they came back, the company was already at dinner. Mademoiselle had not yet returned. Sullenness presided at the table. Columbine and Madame wore anxious expressions. The fact was that relations between Binet and his troupe were daily growing more strained. André-Louis and Leandre went each to his accustomed place. Binet's little eyes followed them with a malicious gleam. His thick lips pouted into a crooked smile. "'You two are grown very friendly of a sudden,' he mocked. "'You're a man of discernment, Binet,' said Scaramouche, the cold loathing of his voice itself an insult. "'Perhaps you discern the reason. "'It is readily discerned. "'Regale the company with it,' he begged, and waited. "'What?' You hesitate. Is it possible that there are limits to your shamelessness? Binet reared his great head. Do you want to quarrel with me, Scaramouche? Thunder was rumbling in his deep voice. Quarrel? You want to laugh. A man doesn't quarrel with creatures like you. We all know the place held in the public esteem by complacent husbands. But in God's name, what place is there at all? "'for complacent fathers!' "'Binet heaved himself up, "'a great towering mass of manhood. "'Violently he shook off the restraining hand of Pierrot, "'who sat on his left. "'A thousand devils!' he roared. "'If you take that tone with me, "'I'll break every bone in your filthy body!' "'If you were to lay a finger on me, Binet, "'you would give me the only provocation I still need to kill you.' André-Louis was as calm as ever, and therefore the more menacing. Alarm stirred the company. He protruded from his pocket the butt of a pistol, newly purchased. I go armed, Binet. It is only fair to give you warning. Provoke me as you have suggested, and I'll kill you with no more compunction than I should kill a slug, which, after all, is the thing you most resemble. A slug, Binet, a fat "'Slimy body, foulness without soul and without intelligence. "'When I come to think of it, I can't suffer to sit at table with you. "'It turns my stomach.' "'He pushed away his platter and got up. "'I'll go and eat at the ordinary below stairs.' "'Thereupon up jumped Columbine. "'And I'll come with you, Scaramouche,' cried she. "'It acted like a signal. "'Had the thing been concerted?' It couldn't have fallen out more uniformly. Binet, in fact, was persuaded of a conspiracy, for in the wake of Columbine went Leandre, in the wake of Leandre, Polichinelle, and then all the rest together, until Binet found himself sitting alone at the head of an empty table in an empty room, a badly shaken man whose rage could afford him no support against the dread by which he was suddenly invaded. He sat down to think things out, and he was still at that melancholy occupation, when perhaps a half-hour later his daughter entered the room, returned at last from her excursion. She looked pale, even a little scared, in reality excessively self-conscious now that the ordeal of facing all the company awaited her. 
Seeing no one but her father in the room, she checked on the threshold. "'Where is everybody?' she asked, in a voice rendered natural by effort. Monsieur Binet reared his great head and turned upon her eyes that were blood-injected. He scowled, blew out his thick lips, and made harsh noises in his throat. Yet he took stock of her, so graceful and comely, and looking so completely the lady of fashion, in her long fur-trimmed travelling coat of bottle green, her muff and her broad hat adorned by a sparkling rhinestone buckle above her adorably coiffed brown hair. No need to fear the future, whilst he owned such a daughter. Let Scaramouche play what tricks he would. He expressed, however, none of these comforting reflections. "'So you're back at last, little fool,' he growled in greeting. "'I was beginning to ask myself if we should perform this evening. It wouldn't greatly have surprised me if you had not returned in time. Indeed, since you have chosen to play the fine hand you held in your own way, and scorning my advice, nothing can surprise me.' She crossed the room to the table, and leaning against it, looked down upon him almost disdainfully. "'I have nothing to regret,' she said. "'So every fool says at first, nor would you admit it if you had. You are like that. You go your own way in spite of advice from older heads. Death of my life, girl. What do you know of men?' "'I am not complaining,' she reminded him. "'No, but you may be presently.' when you discover that you would have done better to have been guided by your old father. So long as your marquis languished for you, there was nothing you could not have done with the fool, so long as you let him have no more than your fingertips to kiss. Ah, oh, name of a name! That was the time to build your future. If you live to be a thousand, you'll never have such a chance again, and you've squandered it. For what? Mademoiselle sat down. "'You're sordid,' she said with disgust. "'Sordid, am I?' His thick lips curled again. "'I have had enough of the dregs of life, and so I should have thought of you. You held a hand on which to have won a fortune if you had played it as I bade you. Well, you've played it, and where's the fortune? We can whistle for that as a sailor whistles for wind, and by heaven we'll need to whistle presently if the weather in the troop continues as it's set in.' That scoundrel Scaramouche has been at his ape's tricks with them. They've suddenly turned moral. They won't sit at table with me any more. He was spluttering between anger and sardonic mirth. It was your friend Scaramouche set them the example of that. He threatened my life, actually. Threatened my life! Called me! Oh, but what does it matter? What matters is that the next thing to happen to us will be that the Binet troop will discover it can manage without Monsieur Binet and his daughter. This scoundrelly bastard I've befriended has little by little robbed me of everything. It's in his power today to rob me of my troop, and the knave's ungrateful enough and vile enough to make use of his power. Let him, said Mademoiselle contemptuously. Let him? He was aghast. "'And what's to become of us?' "'In no case will the Binet troop interest me much longer,' said she. "'I shall be going to Paris soon. "'There are better theatres there than the Fédou. "'There's Mademoiselle Montancier's theatre in the Palais Royal. "'There's the Ambigu Comique, 
There's the Comédie Française. There's even a possibility I may have a theatre of my own. His eyes grew big for once. He stretched out a fat hand and placed it on one of hers. She noticed that it trembled. Has he promised that? Has he promised? She looked at him with her head on one side, eyes sly, and a queer little smile on her perfect lips. He did not refuse me when I asked it, she answered, with conviction that all was as she desired it. Bah! He withdrew his hand and heaved himself up. There was disgust on his face. He did not refuse, he mocked her. And then with passion, had you acted as I advised you, he would have consented to anything that you asked. And what is more, he would have provided anything that you asked, anything that lay within his means, and they are inexhaustible. You have changed a certainty into a possibility, and I hate possibilities. God of God, I have lived on possibilities, and infernally near starved on them. Had she known of the interview taking place at that moment at the Chateau de Sautron, she would have laughed less confidently at her father's gloomy forebodings. But she was destined never to know, which indeed was the cruelest punishment of all. She was to attribute all the evil that of a sudden overwhelmed her, the shattering of all the future hopes she had founded upon the Marquis, and the sudden disintegration of the Binet troupe, to the wicked interference of that villain Scaramouche. She had this much justification that, possibly, without the warning from Monsieur de Sautron, the Marquis would have found in the events of that evening at the Théâtre Feydou a sufficient reason for ending an entanglement that was fraught with too much unpleasant excitement, whilst the breaking up of the Binet troupe was most certainly the result of André-Louis's work, but it was not a result that he intended or even foresaw. So much was this the case that in the interval after the second act he sought the dressing-room shared by Polichinelle and Rodemont. Polichinelle was in the act of changing. "'I shouldn't trouble to change,' he said. "'The piece isn't likely to go beyond my opening scene of the next act with Leandre.' "'What do you mean?' "'You'll see.' He put a paper on Polichinelle's table amid the grease-paints. "'Cast your eye over that. It's a sort of last will and testament in favour of the troupe. I was a lawyer once. The document is in order.' I relinquish to all of you the share produced by my partnership in the company. Well, you don't mean that you are leaving us, cried Polichinelle in alarm, whilst Rodemont's sudden stare asked the same question. Scaramouche's shrug was eloquent. Polichinelle ran on gloomily. Of course it was to have been foreseen. But why should you be the one to go? It is you who have made us, and it is you who are the real head and brains of the troupe. It is you who have raised it into a real theatrical company. If anyone must go, let it be Binet, Binet and his infernal daughter. Or if you go, name of a name, we all go with you. Aye, added Rodemont. We've had enough of that fat scoundrel. I had thought of it, of course, said André Louis. It was not vanity for once. It was trust in your friendship. After tonight we may consider it again. "'if I survive.' "'If you survive!' both cried. "'Polichinelle got up. "'Now what madness have you in mind?' he asked. "'For one thing, I think I am indulging Leandre. "'For another, 
I am pursuing an old quarrel. The three knocks sounded as he spoke. There, I must go. Keep that paper, Polichinelle. After all, it may not be necessary. He was gone. Rodemont stared at Polichinelle. Polichinelle stared at Rodemont. What the devil is he thinking of? quoth the latter. That is most readily ascertained by going to see, replied Polichinelle. He completed changing in haste, and despite what Scaramouche had said, and then followed with Rodemont. As they approached the wings, a roar of applause met them coming from the audience. It was applause and something else, applause on an unusual note. As it faded away, they heard the voice of Scaramouche ringing clear as a bell. And so you see, my dear Monsieur Leandre, that when you speak of the third estate, it is necessary to be more explicit. What precisely is the third estate? Nothing, said Leandre. There was a gasp from the audience, audible in the wings, and then swiftly followed Scaramouche's next question. True, alas, but what should it be? Everything, said Leandre. The audience roared its acclamations, the more violent because of the unexpectedness of that reply. True again, said Scaramouche. And what is more, that is what it will be. That is what it already is. Do you doubt it? I hope it, said the schooled Leandre. You may believe it, said Scaramouche, and again the acclamations rolled into thunder. Polichinelle and Rodemont exchanged glances. Indeed, the former winked, not without mirth. Sacred name, growled a voice behind them. Is the scoundrel at his political tricks again? They turned to confront Monsieur Binet. Moving with that noiseless tread of his, he had come up unheard behind them, and there he stood now in his scarlet suit of pantaloon under a trailing bedgown, his little eyes glaring from either side of his false nose. But their attention was held by the voice of Scaramouche. He had stepped to the front of the stage. He doubts it, he was telling the audience. But then this Monsieur Leandre is himself akin to those who worship the worm-eaten idol of privilege, and so he is a little afraid to believe a truth that is becoming apparent to all the world. Shall I convince him? Shall I tell him? how a company of noblemen, backed by their servants under arms, six hundred men in all, sought to dictate to the third estate of Rennes a few short weeks ago? Must I remind him of the martial front shown on that occasion by the third estate, and how they swept the streets clean of that rabble of nobles? Set can I, noble? Applause interrupted him. The phrase had struck home and caught. Those who had writhed under that infamous designation from their betters leapt at this turning of it against the nobles themselves. But let me tell you of their leader, le pan noble de sept canailles, ou bien le plus canailles de ces nobles. You know him, that one. He fears many things, but the voice of truth he fears the most. With such as him, the eloquent truth eloquently spoken is a thing instantly to be silenced. So he marshalled his peers and their valetai, 
and led them out to slaughter these miserable bourgeois who dared to raise a voice. But these same miserable bourgeois did not choose to be slaughtered in the streets of Rennes. It occurred to them that since the nobles decreed that blood should flow, it might as well be the blood of the nobles. They marshaled themselves too, this noble rabble against the rabble of nobles, and they marshaled themselves so well that they drove Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir and his warlike following from the field with broken heads and shattered delusions. They sought shelter at the hands of the Cordeliers, and the shavelings gave them sanctuary in their convent. Those who survived, among whom was their proud leader, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, you have heard of this valiant marquis, this great lord of life and death? The pit was in an uproar a moment. It quieted again as Scaramouche continued. Oh, it was a fine spectacle to see this mighty hunter scuttling to cover like a hare, going to earth in the Cordelier convent. Ren has not seen him since. Ren would like to see him again. But if he is valorous, he is also discreet. And where do you think he has taken refuge, this great nobleman, who wanted to see the streets of Rennes washed in the blood of its citizens, this man who would have butchered old and young of the contemptible canaille to silence the voice of reason and of liberty that presumes to ring through France today? Where do you think he hides himself? Why, here in Nantes. Again there was uproar. What do you say? Impossible? Why, my friends, at this moment he is here in this theatre, skulking up there in that box. He is too shy to show himself. Oh, a very modest gentleman. But there he is behind the curtains. Will you not show yourself to your friends, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, Monsieur le Marquis, who considers eloquence so very dangerous a gift. See, they would like a word with you. They do not believe me when I tell them that you are here. Now, whatever he may have been, and whatever the views held on the subject by André Louis, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir was certainly not a coward. To say that he was hiding in Nantes was not true. He came and went there openly and unabashed, it happened, however, that the Nantes were ignorant until this moment of his presence among them, but then he would have disdained to have informed them of it, just as he would have disdained to have concealed it from them. Challenged thus, however, and despite the ominous manner in which the bourgeois element in the audience had responded to Scaramouche's appeal to its passions, despite the attempts made by Chabrian to restrain him, the Marquis swept aside the curtain at the side of the box, and suddenly showed himself, pale but self-contained and scornful, as he surveyed first the daring Scaramouche, and then those others who at sight of him had given tongue to their hostility. Hoots and yells assailed him, fists were shaken at him, canes were brandished menacingly. Assassin! Scoundrel! Coward! Traitor! But he braved the storm, smiling upon them his ineffable contempt. He was waiting for the noise to cease, waiting to address them in his turn. But he waited in vain, as he very soon perceived. 
The contempt he did not trouble to dissemble served but to goad them on. In the pit, pandemonium was already raging. Blows were being freely exchanged. There were scuffling groups, and here and there swords were being drawn, but fortunately the press was too dense to permit of their being used effectively. Those who had women with them, and the timid by nature, were making haste to leave a house that looked like becoming a cockpit, where chairs were being smashed to provide weapons, and parts of chandeliers were already being used as missiles. One of these, hurled by the hand of a gentleman in one of the boxes, narrowly missed Scaramouche where he stood, looking down in a sort of grim triumph upon the havoc which his words had wrought. Knowing of what inflammable material the audience was composed, he had deliberately flung down amongst them the lighted torch of discord to produce this conflagration. He saw men falling quickly into groups representative of one side or the other of this great quarrel that already was beginning to agitate the whole of France. Their rallying cries were ringing through the theatre. Down with the canaille, from some. Down with the privileged, from others. And then above the general din, one cry rang out sharply and insistently. To the box! Death to the butcher of Rennes! Death to La Tour d'Azir, who makes war upon the people! There was a rush for one of the doors of the pit that opened upon the staircase leading to the boxes. And now, whilst battle and confusion spread with the speed of fire, overflowing from the theatre into the street itself, La Tour d'Azir's box, which had become the main object of the attack of the bourgeoisie, had also become the rallying ground for such gentlemen as were present in the theatre, and for those who, without being men of birth themselves, were nevertheless attached to the party of the nobles. Latour d'Azir had quitted the front of the box to meet those who had come to join him, and now, in the pit, one group of infuriated gentlemen, in attempting to reach the stage across the empty orchestra, so that they might deal with the audacious comedian who was responsible for this explosion, found themselves opposed and held back by another group composed of men to whose feelings André-Louis had given expression. Perceiving this, and remembering the chandelier, he turned to Leandre, who had remained beside him. "'I think it is time to be going,' said he. Leandre, looking ghastly under his paint, appalled by the storm which exceeded by far anything that his unimaginative brain could have conjectured, gurgled an inarticulate agreement.' but it looked as if already they were too late, for in that moment they were assailed from behind. Monsieur Binet had succeeded at last in breaking past Polichinelle and Rodemont, who in view of his murderous rage had been endeavouring to restrain him. Half a dozen gentlemen, habitués of the green room, had come round to the stage to disembowel the knave who had created this riot, and it was they who had flung aside those two comedians who hung upon Binet. After him they came now, their swords out. But after them again came Polichinelle, Rodemont, Harlequin, Pierrot, Pascariel, and Basque, the artist, armed with such implements as they could hastily snatch up, and intent upon saving the man with whom they sympathized in spite of all, and in whom now all their hopes were centred. Well ahead rolled Binet, moving faster than any had ever seen him move, and swinging the long cane from which Pantaloon was inseparable. "'Infamous scoundrel!' he roared. "'You have ruined me! But, name of a name, you shall pay!' André-Louis turned to face him. "'You confuse cause with effect,' said he. 
but he got no farther. Binet's cane, viciously driven, descended and broke upon his shoulder. Had he not moved swiftly aside as the blow fell, it must have taken him across the head and possibly stunned him. As he moved, he dropped his hand to his pocket, and swift upon the cracking of Binet's breaking cane came the crack of the pistol with which André Louis replied. "'You had your warning, you filthy panda!' he cried, and on the word he shot him through the body. Binet went down screaming, whilst the fierce Polichinelle, fiercer than ever in that moment of fierce reality, spoke quickly into André Louis's ear. "'Fool! So much was not necessary. Away with you now, or you'll leave your skin here. Away with you!' André Louis thought it good advice and took it. The gentleman who had followed Binet in that punitive rush upon the stage, partly held in check by the improvised weapons of the players, partly intimidated by the second pistol that Scaramouche presented, let him go. He gained the wings, and here found himself faced by a couple of sergeants of the watch, part of the police that was already invading the théâtre, in a view to restoring order. The sight of them reminded him unpleasantly of how he must stand towards the law for this night's work, and more particularly for that bullet lodged somewhere in Binet's obese body. He flourished his pistol. "'Make way, or I'll burn your brains!' he threatened them, and, intimidated, themselves without firearms, they fell back and let him pass. He slipped by the door of the green room, where the ladies of the company had shut themselves in until the storm should be over, and so gained the street behind the theatre. It was deserted. Down this he went at a run, intent on reaching the inn for clothes and money, since it was impossible that he should take the road in the garb of Scaramouche. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, Part 7 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and download some free audiobooks. You'll find a variety of longer titles available for free during the pandemic. If you know of anyone who could benefit from some smart entertainment, please let them know about our free stuff. They're welcome to it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>